Markitecture is brought to you by Pontiac Intelligence. Pontiac Intelligence is a demand-side platform designed for running high-quality CTV campaigns. With its proprietary bidder and a focus on privacy-safe era, Pontiac brings clear and powerful differentiation from the crowded DSP space. Transparent, low-tech fees, accurate forecasting, and the ability to manage thousands of simultaneous campaigns with ease. See a demo and learn more at Pontiac.media. That's Pontiac.media. Welcome to the Architecture Podcast. I'm Ari Paparo. I'm joined today by Eric Franchi and Brian Morrissey of The Rebooting. Brian's a longtime journalist in the ad tech space, and he recently started his new company, uh, The Rebooting, which helps to build sustainable media companies. First, some housekeeping. So next week is Thanksgiving, so we won't have a pod next week. I encourage you to talk to your family about ad tech instead of listening to our pod. That's what I'll be doing. All right, let's welcome Brian. Brian, thanks for being here. I'm glad to be here, Ari. Uh, I think you should record a podcast next week, to be honest with you. You think I should do it at the table with my family, where I just explain things to them? Yeah, no, I think it would be good. Yeah, yeah. What ad tech questions do you get from... Like, yeah, you know, what's a clean room, how I should do SPO, um, you know, what's data leakage and why should I care? You know, the typical stuff you hear around your family table. I used to get the pop-up questions, and then I got the critio questions about, well, why is the shoe? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or is my phone listening to me? You know, I get that. Uh, that's the real. Yeah, yeah. I was joking about my questions, <laughs> but we have such a great reputation in this industry for uh, tracking people, surveilling them, doing bad things. It's great. Um, so what's the rebooting, and how are you helping to build sustainable media companies? Yeah, yeah I know. I mean, it's just the mission of it. Like, I think uh, publications should have some kind of mission or reason for existing. I think that's where we're going, like in a lot of publishing is there are a lot of like, to me, zombie brands out there. They don't stand for anything. They're just, I call them eggplant. Like to me, eggplant doesn't taste like anything. It's just, there's a reason you load it down with sauce and cheese because it just like takes all the flavors around it. And all of us have been in the media ecosystem in various parts of it, right? So if, let's just assume that everyone believes that there should be the media ecosystem should continue and like be a healthy ecosystem. I think if you're actually in favor of that, you're not focusing on Roundell and like retail media. Now you're focused on that because there's money, that's fine. But like if you were to like actually have that you wanted to enable the creation of a sustainable and equitable and resilient media ecosystem, you would start with the sickest part and it's publishing. So it's definitely not the best like financial decision. But that's where right. So you're you, you're doing this for the good of humanity and the good of publishing, not to create a business or to be profitable, right? No, no, because like I think no, because I think long term, like without the publishing, pull the publishing piece out. Tell me what the world looks like, and is it a better world or a worse <laughs> world? Is like I don't know. Maybe it's walled gardens. It's e-commerce, and it's you know CTV. Okay, so people are what getting their information. Did you see like Bin Laden is, is having a comeback on TikTok? Unfortunately, yes. I didn't see that one coming. That's the right point, Brian. Talk about a second look. Like I definitely did not think that Bin Laden was getting a second look. Yeah, but it's the right point, Brian. Right, right. It's like if 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 it's largely the walled gardens and the content that is uploaded by individuals and trained on algorithms. You know the way algorithms are trained, you know, to enrage and 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 drive attention. Um, I think you're right. So, I mean, that's sort of my focus. And I think I'm increasingly focused on the buy side through that lens. Look, I've lived this in my life. I, I 
it's been so meta because I've been a journalist for a lot of my career. I think I'm like post-journalism now. I'm trotting that out. I don't know what it means, but it sounds- You're a founder now. You're a founder. Um, right? <laughs> Everyone is post-journalism, uh, it seems. Exactly. Whether they want to be or not. No, but I, I mean, I think about, you know, living it. Like, I mean, my first, my first job in journalism went away after a year magazine closed it's like welcome to the profession and stuff like this and it's fine it's like it's like what you choose to do and i think i think journalism is still a great profession i think it's got problems um, like most professions but it also has incredible challenges to the business models and if you don't fix the business models and you don't align the incentives you're gonna have shitty outcomes all right so how do you do that what are examples of sustainable media companies with sustainable models supporting them well, I mean, I think if you look at like some of the newer models that are being built, I always think about it as like a bad relationship, right? The last generation of digital publishing simply failed, right? And you can, we can argue, we can have like some sort of hate commission about like who's to blame or whatever, but <laughs> it simply didn't work. Are you I mean, talking you like BuzzFeed? BuzzFeed? Is, is that what the well, last yeah, I mean, generation Yeah, BuzzFeed, it's like, it reminds me of like commercial real estate where the building is literally worth less than the land. Like, what is that saying? I mean, that says that that's a bad investment, right? And so I don't know anyone who would go and try to redo that. Um, so if you look at whether it's the pucks or the semaphores or punch bowl, you know, they have different models. They're smaller models. My sort of tagline is more with less because I think publishing is going to be more with less. Publishing is going to to operate and be competing not with other publishers, but in an information space with all kinds of different actors. And honestly, I think what like architecture is doing and in the rebooting is doing is in their own little ways more indicative of the future than a lot of the legacy publications out there, for sure. Well, thank you for that. You don't think when like architecture does like the architecture summit, it will not be competitive to Digiday and to Ad Exchange and all that. Of course it will. It's going to take business from. Do you think some? While we're on this, let's go on the subject. Should we call it the Architecture Summit? Because I was really looking for alliteration. No, that's lame. Because yeah, like, anytime we did, we did the 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 summits at like Digit, and they would it would have those that stupid like mountain thing on there, even though it was in Key Biscayne. <laughs> what should we call it? Uh, we were thinking Architecture Meets, but then but then if you if you spell it M E A T S, it sounds really weird. I like I like meats. Show us the meats. Show us the meats. We've got all the meats. We've got the privacy meats. But it doesn't got, matter. Like the, the, in reality, like you can curate an amazing room, right? That people want to be in, and that's a big part of the future of media. And I think it's going to advantage different types of entities. And so. Yeah, I think architecture is an important part of the future of media. Um, well, absolutely. I'm going to get my blue blazer steamed this weekend. <laughs> are you still rolling in the uh, the chinos, or are you doing jeans? Oh, jeans. I, I made a pledge to myself several years ago to never wear slacks again, and I've held held firm on that one. Eric, you were going to say uh, I think it's referred to the ad tech tuxedo, and I'm pretty sure yeah. Brian Art actually named it. That's what's held me back on events because I I feel like I can't do five dudes and now it's four four dudes and one woman in uh blue blazers on stools so i have i have an innovation for architecture meets i am actually working on this um one of the innovations is no stools i'm gonna make people oh stand. i did that dude you're stealing my innovations yes digiday now has gone back to they've they've tried to there's been they've tried to erase my legacy by bringing back the chairs 
What about if I do treadmills? <laughs> like Joanna Coles. That was like every every Joanna Coles profile like made sure that they mentioned that like she does meetings like on her walking treadmill. No, but I want a panel. Uh, I want a panel on a treadmill. I'll come out of. I I've retired from moderating panels, but I'd come out as long as we crank it up. But you're like a marathoner. You you'd be have no problem talking. I, I'd have a hard time talking while I'm going up on a 10 percent incline. I got to get in shape for this architecture meets coming up. So uh, number one, uh, number one way to um, of the new model is keeping it lean. So having less salaried journalists compared to the amount of content coming out. That makes total sense. What else is sustainable? What other techniques? Well, I actually, I think it's, it's fewer of the in-between. If you look inside of most uh, publishing and media companies, the overwhelming number of people are not um, the people making the product, right? I mean, it's, think about, remember when like ad tech was supposed to like replace yeah. people? What? What? That didn't happen. They said programmatic was the opposite of manual. There's more people involved in than ever. I mean, that's what gives me hope with AI stuff because I'm like, programmatic was supposed to replace all these salespeople. Salespeople are not only still around, they're still making like a ton of money. If you ask there are me. so many startups right now who are, whose pitch is uh, we use AI to automate ad-ups. Um, and I, I just have to wonder is like, would do, maybe ad-ups doesn't exist and that's what the AI does. No, but I think like you're going to have to do more with less. This is a shrinking, the, the publishing industry is shrinking and it's the changes going on right now are structural. They're not cyclical. And I don't see anything, I don't see any reversal on the horizon. So I personally believe that being lean is incredibly valuable and that basically the scale that was a competitive advantage or was presented as a competitive advantage is now an album. So that's the cost side. What about the, the revenue side? What is the, what is the future of, you know, the, the, the proto publisher that thrives? What does the revenue side look like? Advertising is still uh, going to be an important part of just about every single publishing model. But let's look at what, what publishers are doing well with advertising as a model. Okay, It is in areas that they are protected. So for instance, Washington, D.C. is a hotbed of sustainable media. Who would have thought? I mean, Washington. This is always a backwater. And the reason is because Axios, Punchbowl, Politico, semaphore, they're all feeding at the same trough. And that trough is people trying to influence regulators and government. In this situation, Google and Facebook and Amazon, they are not your competitors. They're your biggest customers. Choose areas like that. That's a good area. The problem is there aren't many areas like that. Jay Pensky was smart in that he went to the uh, for your consideration ads area and mopped that up somehow. And that's another really lucrative area. It's just not it's not very big, but the idea that you're going to compete on data and like one-to-one -one targeting with Amazon, with Target, with Google, with Facebook, with Amazon, like that's ridiculous. Publishers are not going to be able yeah, to do that. So that's why they're going into things like events and activations and they're becoming like ad agents. What about subscriptions? I mean, the Athletic was acquired by the New York Times. Wirecutter was acquired by the New York Times. Um, is it? That wasn't subset. That was commerce. Right. Okay. Right? As affiliate yep. strip. So, so what other models are working in that area? I just think that like subs are part, uh, like, you know, they're a piece of the puzzle. I did this like executive dinner last night for people who lead subscription programs. And, you know, the reality of subscriptions is the same. Like, it's a matured industry. 
the numbers go up phase is over. And now it's into optimization and the hard yards. And it's not about 30% subscriber growth. It's about ARPU. Okay. And that is a different situation. You're not going to dollar $1 Cyber Monday offer your way into a sustainable subscription program. Those things were always about like optics and, and almost vanity numbers at the end of the day. 80% of the people would churn first month. People are going to get, they have to get rid of like a lot of these monthly uh, subscriptions. You know, publishers too often by necessity have been so short term focused that. I compare it to like, remember those old like Canon camera sure. shows where they would have like a dollar on a string? That's right. Yeah, like yeah. the first of, people walking down the street would go, that was been publishers basically. They saw like a dollar, they would always fall for it. They would go leaping. <laughs> and then it would get yanked away. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely the best way to understand publishers. Whenever I talk to startups <laughs> trying to sell to publishers, I, I say they'll just do anything for money. I mean, that's like anything for yeah, money. Yeah, incremental. Uh, they're suckers for an incremental. <laughs> um, let's talk about the less good side of things. Um, so uh, Jezebel went out of business. Um, yeah, it's too bad. Yeah, what's your what's your evaluation? Uh, well, I don't think they fit some of the criteria you were saying for sustainable businesses. They were they paid. They had a bunch of reporters. They were advertising supported. They were not in a valuable niche. I don't think they fit for where they lived, right? Like, I mean, it does not make sense in a portfolio that is owned by a private equity firm and run by Jim Spanfowler. It just doesn't. Like, I mean, I've known Jim for a long time. He's got a playbook. Everyone's got a playbook. I don't, personally, I think a lot of the playbooks in the past don't work anymore, but that playbook doesn't fit with a brand like Jezebel at all. I don't even know why they included it in the sale. Could Jezebel exist with like a defector model? Probably. How would that work? Walk us through that. What's a defector model? Well, like defector, I mean, it's very similar. Like, you know, defector was a bunch of people from Deadspin who were included in the deal to Geo Media. They all went in revolt. They had like a worker revolt. They went off and started their own publication, worker owned. I encourage everyone to look at their, they do this annual report every year. They just released it yesterday. And it's great because it's like everyone in this industry, every time I ever ask about numbers, they're like, we can't disclose that. I'm like, yes, you can. Like, what are you talking about? Just because you, you don't want to, it doesn't mean you can't. Like that, you're choosing to, but don't say you can't. Like that's, there's no legal problem with you as a private company being, giving real numbers instead of bullshit numbers. But okay. But like, yeah, I mean, they're, they, they're generating four and a half million dollars and it's a sustainable business. Is it are they building the next Condé Nast? I don't think so. No. But there's going to be, there's a lot of opportunities to create small scale and meaningful businesses. I just don't think it's just not going to be the big businesses that people had dreamed about creating. Yeah. And I think the Jezebel thing, I think it also connects to the question I wanted to ask around, you know, Condé Nast. And it's about legacy brands. So Jezebel was hot during the heyday of like what you often refer to as like high metabolism, you know, pounding out content, blogs, frequency, so on and so forth um, under that whole umbrella. Is that a brand that's relevant these days versus something like The Defector or, you know, in B2B, you're, you're a thing that just spun up. And then you go down to things like Condé, which 
exist on the virtue of brand and how relevant to a, 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 yeah. a younger consumer base are these brands anymore? Yeah. So I'm like going to try to, this is very dangerous as a 50 year old man to put myself in the shoes of like some young woman in her like early twenties. <laughs> this never goes well. Um, from everything I've seen, like let's just like Jezebel had like a real following, right? Like there's a lot of times as we all know when these digital brands, particularly when they go away, there's this gnashing of teeth. And like, I personally, I'm like, you know, there's those celebrities who you like forget are sure. alive and you're like, oh, they're still alive. Like, with the, oh, I didn't even know they were still alive when they did die. Like, I was like, oh my God, like, really? I thought they had already passed away. You know, same way with like digital brands, which by the way, they never like, most digital brands never die. You know, they get sun off to what I call the SEO glue factory, um, which is which is the most pathetic. And like Gawker just got dug up from the dead again. I'm like, just let it go. Let, I mean, this is getting, parading this corpse around is bad. Nobody wants this. But back to the brand question. <laughs> oh, anyway, Jezebel. So I, I think Jezebel had like, from everything I could tell, they had a real brand, right? It just didn't work within the model of, you know, how like a geo media makes money. That's why I think a lot of these roll-ups don't work, right? Like you need to go, look at what, what, BuzzFeed is doing, they are going down to the brand level. They, they gave up on like literally the entire premise, as far as I can tell, of the company. I mean, a lot of credit for giving up on that. And when your stock is that low, I guess you do those kind of things. But that tells me something. Now, on the Conde side, I would question whether a brand like Cosmopolitan that meant as much to a 23-year-old woman when Helen Gurley Brown was running it has that same tie. Most brands are existing on fumes at the end of the day. They're being created by totally different people than created, that created the brand in a totally different environment. It doesn't mean that there's no value left in a lot of these brands, but unfortunately, a lot of them are, fortunately or unfortunately, I'm not going to make a value judgment. A lot of them are going to head off into like the harvesting phase of their existence. I mean, we see this with Forbes and with other brands where they're milked for the equity that really still exists in them. But is that equity the same as it was in their like heyday? No, of course not. The reality of a lot of these roll-ups, if you will, I think you know some similar things are going on at Recurrent is the sum is not necessarily greater than the parts, right? In like an era that you can go to an advertiser and be like, you can just transact with us across all these different brands, like the juice is not worth the squeeze. Like you're creating a lot of the premise based on this has just simply not been realized in the market. I mean, I give them credit for sort of tacking back at the end of the day to, okay, these individual brands are what is most important and they sort of need different strategies. So that makes sense to me. I'm not sure that the other strategy, at least by the results in the market, ever made sense or they, or they didn't execute. Either way, it didn't work. Yeah. Uh, is the ultimate sustainable model for media just to be owned by a billionaire? I don't know many billionaires, but... Um, really? You don't know any? I mean, I know... Your, work your address book. I'm sure you know a billionaire I think somewhere. I said somewhere, I was like, I think I could probably send out a bunch of emails and get like connected to like one billionaire, maybe. One of those low-end billionaires, like the single digit... Yeah, like a bare, barely... Like someone who just like opened a second-tier fast food chain. Yeah, yeah you exactly. Know? <laughs> 
Because the billionaires are like the people you don't expect. <laughs> to be billionaires. Well, anyway, so are you worried that like uh, that like some venture capital firm that hates media will will uh, create a new publication to compete with you and like? No, great. Try I to become journalists. Awesome. I I welcome it. Like, why not? Because I think you know, look, the nature of media is changing quite a bit, and that's why I like I was I was actually being serious that I think like architecture and even what I'm doing are part of the future of it. Is that there are going to be all sorts of new entrants. And the idea, there's too many people within the publishing industry, particularly, that want to go back to the past, right? There's just too much nostalgia for this time when they controlled distribution, they had a ton of unearned advantages. Well, guess what? You got to compete every day, every day for attention. You got to cr- compete for credibility and you got to do it like in like a a Mad Max like environment of this of this information space. So I think it can be really good and exciting. And I think that a venture capital firm can start a publication. You can start architecture. I could just peel off and do the rebooting, and you know everyone gets to to compete out there for attention, credibility. It's great. Uh, while we're talking about the tech giants, there's been a lot of news that the traffic that they're sending is on a pretty precipitous decline. And this is relatively recent, like over the last three to six months. Is this the final nail in the coffin for sort of free traffic? Well, search is the final nail in the coffin, Mm. right? Like, I mean, forget about the social traffic. That was always kind of bullshit, right? Like it was hard to monetize and um, it was so fleeting. Like it was the lowest quality stuff. Search has like real intent and is like really profitable traffic particularly when we talk about commerce and quotes, it's really affiliate. And just like the pivot to video was a pivot to Facebook, commerce slash affiliate is SEO. It's part of an SEO strategy. And Google has what I believe the VCs would call like an orthogonal threat on its hands with ChatGPT. And they're going to have to make a lot of changes and they're already making changes and they're accelerating their keeping people on their page. Zero click searches are like over 50% on mobile. That's not going to go down. That's only going to go up. I've never heard a case that publishers are going to get more traffic from search going forward than they Did you see- now. Like, is there a case? No, no, I, I, I don't believe so. Did you see that email from Barry Diller that was floating around? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love yeah. that. We should, we should link to it in the show notes. All right. Did you see it? Yeah, I saw it. Uh, the uh, no one's reading our show notes, so our our alleged linking in the show notes has been a, a sort of a farce on our listeners for quite some time. <laughs> <laughs> Never do it. I did it like the first two or three saying, podcasts. <laughs> I keep saying it's going to be in the show notes. <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah. The way to see the show notes is to uh, is to give it five stars, and the show notes will pop up in a separate window. Uh, so, <laughs> Eric, tell us about the Barry Diller. It was, and I'm and I'm paraphrasing. I I, I saw it once um, this week, but it's um it's a it's an email that Barry Diller wrote to Google, basically saying how you know I've been with you with you since the beginning, both personally and you know as I see, my brands, including the travel brands, have spent hundreds of millions of dollars annually. We spend more every year, and we are getting far less on a percentage basis um, with our search results because we're being pushed down um, because of ads and because of Google properties. 
And it was, um, it was a real appeal to them just, you know, saying like, look, I'm spending more and more, I'm getting less and less, like what, what's going on here? Um, it was very well written. It's making its way. I think everybody can find it since there's no show notes. Yeah. So this is, I'll actually quote from, and this is what he wrote this to Philip Schindler, the chief business officer at uh, Google who probably was like choking on his quinoa salad when he like uh, read this. He said, from 2015 to 2019, five years, VRBO has received the same amount of visits, some 500 million from Google. The visits never much changing from year to year. Yet the money VRBO has paid to Google has doubled every year, going from 21 million, almost 300 million over those five years. Incredible, no? <laughs> it is incredible. And, and I'm sure the Google... I mean, come on. How is this? A, how does it? How is this not like a dominant marketing position? Like, I'm like, this is to me. It's closer to like owning. I always compare it to like owning a parking lot, like at, at a resort next to the beach. Like, <laughs> okay, yeah, it's not hard to make money off that. And when you control the distribution for the open web, Google mm-hmm. never gave guidance because they never had to give guidance because they could just turn the knob and they could have the results. I, I think the original sin in Google's march to uh, dominance was when they won that lawsuit, I forget against who, but it was around the branded keywords uh, that someone that basically they were allowed. To, oh, yeah. I covered that, man. I was all up. Who, who was the uh, complainant? It was a Brooks Brothers, Brothers was always yeah. pissed about that. They're like, we got a bid on like, you know, like non-iron business shirts or something that they had trademark. And they're like, there's no way that this you could have trademark terms. And Google was like going back and forth at the time. And then they started to get the MBAs in and they're like, dude, we just got a lawyer up. There's too much money. <laughs> it's a protection racket. Give me a break. That, that's, is that advertising, by the way? Is that advertising? It's, it's advertising the same way the Yellow Pages used to be advertising. It's the exact same thing. It's a directory. Um, and everyone uses it. And consumer, as has been shown in the antitrust trial going on right now, consumers won't switch. No matter what you do, consumers won't switch. So um, they're going to enjoy their monopoly until the technology changes, like voice or something like that, that it's possible to switch. It needs to be such a different experience that consumers are willing to try something else. As long as it's a box that you type words into, Google's going to be dominant. With that, let's take a quick break and come back and do News of the Week. This is a message from our sponsor. I'd like to introduce you to Publica by IAS, the award-winning CTV ad server trusted by some of the biggest streaming services and smart TV manufacturers globally. Publica helps a growing number of leading AVOD and FAST services to power the programmatic ad break decisioning via products including a unified auction, server-side ad insertion, and a demand-agnostic ad server built from the ground up around streaming. Head to getpublica.com to find out how they help CTV publishers to grow their advertising revenues and provide streaming audiences with linear-like TV ad break experiences. So while we're talking about this whole thing about news apps, uh, news getting traffic from search, there was the latest totally idiotic study from, I believe, Columbia, the saying that Google would owe publishers $10 billion a year to get all of their news. And this study uh, basically assumes that Google is making money on news, which it's not. It assumes that publishers don't want the free traffic, which they do. And it assumes Google would continue to you know, operate their news business if they had to pay $10 billion a year, which they would not. And I'll just sum it up. Benedict Evans, uh, the analyst, said on uh, uh, Threads, the level of self-delusion in this is astonishing. They just made up the numbers and insisted they are real. 
So that's my little tirade. I'm, uh, <laughs> Brian, what do you think about this, like, Google should pay for news links thing that comes up every once in a while? I mean, it always comes up, right? Like, I mean, I think there's there's always, to me, like, I remember, like, so many years ago, be like, people like demanding, stop backlinking to us. It's, what are you talking about? Have you met the internet? I mean, to me, it's just, it's leverage and like a legal battle. This is not any different than any kind of study in quotes that's ginned up because of some regulatory dispute. Um, as we all know, like many times the arguments are set and then the sort of evidence is step two. Yeah. Two. You know, that's just the reality. I mean, so you just plug in something that fits your argument. And if this fits the argument, great. And, you know, the reality is there's going to be a lot of legal battles that are coming with um, AI search and LLMs and training the data on that. I think in general, just like nobody is ever going to pay people for their data. I think you've probably made this point like a million times, right? Like, I mean, people's data is never nearly as valuable as they think it is. And unfortunately for publishers, most publishers leave aside the Bloombergs in particular, you know, unique data sets and stuff. Their general, you know, content is not as valuable as they think it is. Um, I got passed along some conversation that uh, someone was having with one of these big tech platforms that basically was offering them like a few hundred thousand dollars to license like all of their content. Yeah, and uh, and we actually have evidence on this point. We have a nat- we have a natural uh, a natural test on this uh, because in Canada they passed a law requiring payments for news, and the platforms just removed their news. Well, that's because there's there's just a lack of leverage in all parts, and I think that's why these antitrust actions are, you know, both interesting but really difficult in that. Proving consumer harm is is almost impossible, right? You get free access, and you know, people love Google and everything. And if people, if publishers, for instance, do not want to participate in the search index, there is a pathway. It's called you know no follow that they can do this. It's fine. Remove your stuff from the search index. Go ahead. Look, Reddit is threatening to do it. The reality is the kind of leverage that Reddit has is extremely different than. Like some newspaper has no leverage. Exactly. Um, so two weeks ago, we had Tom Triscari on, in addition to talking about his musical about programmatic, which I'm still looking forward to. Uh, he also made some points about the trade desk being sort of priced for perfection. And lo and behold, the trade desk's earnings came out last week, and they gave mild guidance about next quarter. It really wasn't even that bad. And their stock went down almost 30%. It's back a bunch since then, um, but it seems a bit more precarious having taken one body blow. Eric, do you want to, uh, any thoughts on the trade desk uh, and its valuation, how that affects startups, how people think about it? Yeah. Um, it's still up like a ton, right? Which I think is is you know the, the most important thing. Um, but kudos to Tom. He, he absolutely nailed it. Taking a step back, it was up 25% you know, year over year, um, you know, based on the, the, the quarterly results, they just said that, you know, they're see, they, they saw some softness in October with a couple of key segments like autos and one or two others that, you know, made the outlook for Q4 at this time kind of murky. And, you know, everybody took that as like an, oh my God moment, but it seemed to be more of a, more of a hiccup. 
Um, I don't think this has any impact on startups. Uh, it definitely, if you're priced for perfection, you have to be perfect. Um, other trade desk news um, just came out today that uh, Kroger, the retail uh, company, is making its data available in Trade Desk. Uh, the, the press release said it, it was exclusive to Trade Desk, but they really the press release said it was quote starting exclusively with the Trade Desk. So it sounds like the Kroger data is going to be available in multiple DSPs. Um, but the Trade Desk got a running start at that, um, which kind of reinforces the Trade Desk's. Um, you know, approach of bringing in a lot of retail data and making it kind of the place for offsite retail activation. I'm not sure there's that much more on that story. It's just kind of a, you know, a noteworthy additional development. The uh, Eric, you had put on the show notes about Amazon selling cars online uh, with Alexa integration. What's going and on here? He tweeted this like right before the, the pod. So there, there hasn't been too much news um, as of uh, as of this recording. Um, basically, they announced that uh, they're going to be selling cars on Amazon, uh, much the same that I think you'd expect with the Tesla experience. Like, So with Tesla, uh, you don't walk into a Tesla dealership because there are no dealers. Tesla just owns the whole channel, um, and it's a store. And you can either go into the store and buy a car, no negotiation, just configure it, um, or you can go online and buy your car, no negotiation. It's wild when you do it for the first time. Um, but it's amazing because you don't have to do, do, deal with any car dealers. Um, Amazon should absolutely have the same experience. It sounds like that they're starting with um, Hyundai. Uh, the interesting thing that I caught, and again, you know, it was, it, was a, it was a tweet and linked to a press release, is that uh, they're working with Hyundai uh, with some Alexa integrations. Uh, so, you know, like much the same as you might expect with having like Apple CarPlay and you have access to Siri and a couple of apps. Um, sounds like they're creating some consumer functionality um, with Alexa. And I think that, you know, sort of w- why is this relevant to ad tech? I think today it's not relevant to ad tech. But tomorrow, right, if the future of, you know, some type of navigation, both in terms of like finding places to go and things to eat and places to shop, is voice while you're in the car, is in entertainment while you're in the car, with Amazon and their assets, probably something interesting there if you're, you know, sort of like have an eye on the future. I'll be interested to see if car companies just give up on trying to pretend that they're tech companies. Like they just, they can't do it. Like anyone has seen, like who uses the navigation system in these car, like yeah. they should. That's why this is great. And that's why like they're, they need. Other yeah. There've been stories right? going around like that the tech companies are sort of flexing their muscles in the negotiation with the car companies and they want their operating systems to control more and more of the car you know, things like windows and air conditioning and stuff like that. Uh, and the car companies are really pushing back on that. So there's kind of this undercurrent battle going on about control within the cars. And I think a lot of these car companies um, feel like they may be on the wrong side of a, a very long transition, especially when compared to Tesla. Man, they're the new publishers. I mean, that's why Tesla's stock is so high, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're going to have to capitulate to, to Tesla. They're going to have to use their network. They're going to have to use their software. They're, I mean, I, I, have you seen that the thing from, I think it was the Ford CEO, like they pit their suppliers against each other. And that's just the way they've always no. done things. And they can't develop software that way. They, yeah, it's a big, things don't even talk to each other. And yeah, that, that's one of the underlying problems of car automation is that all of their components are sourced to lowest cost. So the like the the yeah. physical interface that goes from the car's its brain to the say the windows 
may be different depending on the region of the of the world that the car is yeah. made in, which makes it very difficult. I mean, my brother's in the in the semiconductor industry, and he was like telling me the car companies are hopeless. Like the reason, like the chip shortage is just like they think this is like just the same thing as their industrial supply chain process, and they they run the same playbook basically, and they have one system and just does not work. There was actually a report just today. Uh, I may be misquoting it, but uh, I think JP Morgan estimated that Tesla is already making billions of dollars in profit by the upgrade to the self-driving technology that it offers Tesla drivers. So that's an add-on. You don't get it for free with the Tesla. You have to pay. And they they estimate it could be a $45 billion line item for Tesla on an annual basis. Well, how much of Tesla, you know, they can upgrade everything, right? Like, Tesla Plus is coming, obviously. It's priced into the stuff. They just haven't turned it on yet. Right. right. The ability to increase the amount of money you make from a car purchaser over time is so radically different from anything that normal car companies do. Maybe maybe there's some like OnStar or things like that, but this is just such a big paradigm change to turn the yeah. car into software. Software updates in a car is wild. You walk in in the morning and you've got software updates and they're cool, like it's your computer or your phone. It is wild. Until it crashes, <laughs> metaphorically or physically. Um, so, um, are, are you guys both Tesla people? <laughs> I'm not. I, Tesla I have a Tesla. Eric has. Yeah, he's a. Eric? I don't know if you know this, Brian, but as, uh, but Eric is a venture capitalist. I know. No, he's got a vest on. I know that. And there's a there's a pretty high correlation <laughs> with Tesla ownership. Um, he does have a vest on, by the way, but it's an undertone vest. So this is the story that I think is by far the most important Antec story I've heard recently, and no one's talking about it, which is uh, YouTube has started blocking ad blockers. Um, and why is this a big story? Um, well, because the number one reason people install ad blockers is actually to get rid of YouTube ads. Uh, ad blockers tend very young. The people who install them are much younger, much more interested in gaming and video. And um, and I've seen numerous reports saying YouTube is the victim of the ad blockers. Um, so th- why is this a big deal? Well, first of all, YouTube can move the market. Like them uh, by not allowing people to watch videos without with an ad blocker on, they're going to cause some change. We don't know what the change is going to be, but they're going to cause a big change. Secondly, this could have a really big impact on YouTube's revenue. You know, I, I think we'll see this in the financial reports in the coming quarters. You know, Brian, what's what's your point of view on ad blockers? What do you tell your kind of publishers? Yeah, I think that's like that's very astute that people sort of sometimes gloss over. Is remember the yeah. big ad blocking scourge? Yeah. It was like three years ago. We like whipped it up a little bit at Digiday. <laughs> I was one of those stories where I was I was telling people, I'm like, let's do. We'd have ones where I would say too too many stories rather than too too few. Um, but it was never about display ads or any of that stuff. It was. Usually about pre-roll. That's what people really want to want to skip. And yeah, it'll it'll benefit publishers because publishers. That's the whole tough part about publishing is it's downstream of so much stuff that is out of their control. Even with AI or with adblock, like it's someone else has control over something that impacts materially and severely their business. And so, but without distribution control, I don't understand how. Publishers can get control of their businesses back. But anyway, I think this could be like a positive downstream impact in that um, they're just kind of publishers, again, are collateral damage to people trying to avoid for the most part, because most a lot of publisher websites are atrocious. Take a guess without 
Googling what percentage of worldwide internet users use an ad blocker in 2023. Worldwide? I'm going with uh, 10. 40%. 20. 40? That seems really too high. Um, a little history here, which is the leading ad blockers all actually have revenue deals with Google. Uh, it's called the Acceptable Ads Program. Um, and that allows people with ad blockers oh, yeah. to see some ads, including search ads. And so it's very important, obviously, for Google to show the search ads. So this friend of mine who remained anonymous, his theory was that this is actually a really bad idea uh, by YouTube, that you're effectively radicalizing the consumers and they're going to uninstall their mainstream ad blockers and install like the real dirty, you know, internet under undergrowth ad blockers that don't do acceptable ads and they're going to lose money on it. Yeah, the, the acceptable ads thing is like hilarious because to me, like there's only a few really iron like clad business models of the internet and like the protection racket again it always comes through like what is this other than a protection it is this should be one of your advice uh, one of your pieces of advice for sustainable media companies create a protection racket a protection racket (laughs) just walk around the neighborhood with a lead pipe and be like i'd really hate instead of sponsored content do anti-sponsored content like we won't write a hit piece on you if you pay us a hundred dollars a week in an envelope every friday all right it's sustainable journalism journalism. otherwise the hit pieces are coming But you got to have it recurring. So, like, if you stop your, like, you know, whatever we call this subscription, then the, like, the hit pieces start coming. And each month that you, you keep, you know, off the subscription. Yeah. It's it's blackmail, basically. What? Yeah. I'm just, I'm just saying. Okay. I I think, I think we've, we've run out of rope here. (laughs) I I think we've run out of rope on this conversation. Um, so what should people do? They should go to the rebooting and sign up for your newsletter to start. Is that a good place to start? Sure. That's a good one. Yeah, that's All good. right. Well, um, Eric Franchi, Brian Morrissey, thank you both for being here. Thanks. Thank you for subscribing to Marketecture. New interviews are added every week at Marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.